You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Just a couple of little brief things before we get started today. The first one, I uh, want to remind you to head over and subscribe to the UpZone podcast. Uh, that's the one that Kia Wilson in our office is putting out. It's, it's a fantastic podcast. I like it. Uh, I'm on it and I have a lot of fun with Kia every week talking about a different topic and, uh, and UpZoning it, getting deep into the weeds. Uh, the other podcast you're going to want to check out is It's the Little Things. Uh, that one is by Jacob Moses, putting that on in our office. And he, he is, Jacob is doing a fantastic job chatting with people and, and really getting kind of to the essence of people who are out there doing what they can to build strong towns. What does that mean? Uh, what does that mean in the trenches? And his podcast is focusing on people who are doing that. If you haven't checked those out yet, Go subscribe to him. You're going to like him a lot. You're going to enjoy them. <laughs> My buddy here uh, came in the office with me tonight. Uh, Gryffindor, the uh, half Sharpay, half Lab. Those of you that have been with us a long time uh, know that I'm a Samoyed guy. Uh, we've always had Samoyed since my wife and I got married, the big, like, white, fluffy snow dogs. Um, they, uh, the last year was our last, uh, our last year was Samoyeds. Um, we had two old, old ones and they had lived long and happy lives. Uh, Gryffindor is the, uh, the pound dog we got <laughs> last, uh, last spring. And, uh, he comes into the office with me sometimes late at night. They're not allowed in the, the office complex during the day. So don't tell my landlord, but we, uh, we go for a nice long walk at night and sometimes head over here and record a podcast for all of you. So he's, when I started talking now, he got up and started walking over here and like, hey, dude, what's going on? <laughs> Chill, Griff. Uh, we'll be done in a little bit, bud. Um, this last week, I was in Baltimore, uh, and I spoke at the ICMA conference, which is like the International City Managers Association. And so it's a, a collection of people who run cities, right? Um people who work on the budgets and the staff and kind of as the liaison to the council uh, and, uh, you know, runs the media relations and, and all that stuff. These are the people who are sitting at kind of the top of the executive food chain in most cities in the country. And I've been trying to, I mean, the ICMA and, 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 and us here at Strong Towns or we here at Strong Towns, uh, have been trying to get me uh, there for a while now. And this is the first year that it worked. And I'm, I'm glad that it did. It went really well. Uh, we, I gave a talk to a, a room that was packed when I started. And it was a huge room. I mean, there was a few hundred people in there, at least. It was a it was huge room and it was packed. By the time I was done, there were people sitting in front on the floor and the aisles on the floor, standing in back. The, the doors were packed. Um, it went really well. It went really well. And they had me do a book signing afterwards, which was cool. Uh, I don't know how many copies of my book they had purchased a lot, uh, but they sold out of them, sold out of them really quick, which was super cool. Uh, it was, um, it was quite, uh, it was quite invigorating. I had a long line of people and, and got to chat with a, a whole bunch of people who 
wanted me to sign a copy of the book and tell me their story. And it was, uh, it was quite invigorating. But I've been, I've been doing this long enough uh, to be able to read an audience pretty well, even an audience as large as this one. And it's interesting because uh, professional audiences are the toughest. <laughs> they're, they're, the, they're the hardest. That night, I, I went and gave a talk in the old Goucher neighborhood in Baltimore to, uh, it was sponsored by a neighborhood group, and I think you would call it a collection of neighborhood activists. There was a council member there who introduced me, and by the way, greatest introduction I've ever had. Uh, we'll probably be sharing it uh, on the website at some point. It was so cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, a bunch of neighborhood activists, for the most part, uh, people who were interested in, in that neighborhood came and showed up. And that crowd was awesome. I mean, I, 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 I felt the energy, I felt the love, I felt the passion, and it was fantastic. City managers, not so much. <laughs> now, that's not to say, like I said, we started out with kind of a, you know, a full audience, and then it swelled to overflowing by the time we were done. So it was well-received, and you know, the, the talk went really well. But you get this vibe whenever, uh, you know, whenever I speak to a group of professionals, I get the same kind of, you know, sense in the room. And here's, here's the way I would describe it standing up front. Um, half the room is uh, like in, in kind of stunned disbelief or, uh, you know, bordering on like affirmation, like, yes, you are you know, thank you. You are saying what I have been trying to say, what I have been trying to, you know, complete the thoughts in my mind. You are connecting dots that I've been struggling to connect or I've connected, but people think I'm crazy when I say it. You are up here. Hallelujah. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to just continue to nod my head throughout this presentation. I'm going to take out my camera and take some photos of your slides. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. But there's another half of the audience. <laughs> and this is the half that really comes out strong when you're in a group of professionals. Um, and I would describe their reaction is, okay, I get it. I get what you're saying, but that's not me. I get what you're saying, but like we, we don't have that problem. Or I see what you're saying, and I see why like some other places are a bunch of fools, but we're really smart, and we've got this figured out. And in fact, when we got to the Q&A, you know, some people got up and they asked, you know, really good substantive questions. Uh, a couple of people got up and explained to me why their city was not like anything I described. And of course, they, they made this argument in kind of the most absurd ways. You know, uh, we have special assessment districts where we, you know, assess out uh, local roads. And I'm like, well, okay. So all local roads? Well, oh no, only the ones we've done in the last 20 years. Well, what about the ones older than that? Well, you know, we're working on those. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, you haven't solved, you know, you haven't solved the problem. You haven't solved the collect. And that's just the, the local streets. I mean, you still have all the collectors and arterials that you've built. You still have all the common infrastructure. You still like, don't, don't. It's, it's a, and I get it. It's a, it's a natural human reaction um, so this isn't so much like defensiveness as it is just, you know, your brain not wanting to believe and finding every like reason you can to not believe it. This is a, this is a natural human reaction. We all do this. Um, 
for those of you that uh, are political people, or even if you're, you know, maybe just have like a political leaning, uh, go, go read Jonathan Haidt, uh, the, the, the rational, uh, what's his book? Uh, I can't remember the, the rational, the rational mind or something like that. I, I, I can't remember. It's fascinating because he explains exactly how this works. Um, if someone, uh, of our tribe or our, you know, belief that's kind of aligned with what we generally believe says something, um, we are apt to not only believe it, uh, but try to find like confirming evidence uh, in the world around us or in things other people say. Our, 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 our burden of proof for sources is very low. Uh, our burden of proof for believability is very low. Um, we're inclined to believe these things because they match essentially like our gut intuition. If you go the other way, uh, if it's someone from a, a political perspective that you don't subscribe to, uh, or are not sympathetic to, uh, immediately you, your, your, your disbelief thing goes way up. And the burden of proof in your mind goes way up. Uh, the idea of, you know, where's this information coming from? Uh, you know, show me competing studies. Show me someone from my tribe who's uh, arguing against this uh, or arguing for it, you know, before I'm going to believe it. Um, th- there's, there's this whole kind of way the brain works to affirm the things that we want to and find evidence to allow us to deny the things that we want to deny that that's human. And even if you're, you know, of a, (laughs) even if you're of a political persuasion where you think like I'm governed by rationality and science, uh, you're not, you're, you're not. My friend, Joe Minicozzi has a way of putting this. He's like, we all like to think we're Spock and we just, Think rationally, and this is pure logic, and can't you see it? It's obvious. We've got data and facts and studies, and we're Spock. Um, When in actuality, we're all just Homer Simpson, who wants the donut. And our brain just works to give us all the explanations for why uh, the donut would be good, and why you want the donut and need the donut, and the donut's the best thing for you. We're we're a bunch of Homer Simpsons. So I'm, I'm watching this audience, and I'm seeing... The Homer Simpson reaction here, because unlike the old Goucher neighborhood where I was later in the evening, where they're very inclined to, uh, you know, be open to the narrative and want to talk about the narrative and and it squares with a a lot of their experience in the room with city managers, this is a huge challenge to their worldview. Um, This is really, really uh, hard and you feel that from them. Like you, you, I, can, I can stand up there in front of hundreds of people and I can watch people struggle with this. It's hard. It's hard for them. And let's be sympathetic, right? Let's be sympathetic. Um, whatever your profession is, whatever your line of work is, uh, if someone stood up in front of you today and showed you very compelling evidence that the things that you had been doing for the last decade, two decades, three decades, your whole career, uh, that you believed were doing good in the world and making the world a better place. That not only was it not making the world a better place, but it was actually harming people. You would have a hard time believing that too. You, you would have a hard time believing that. And so let's be a little bit sympathetic to that reaction. That doesn't mean the reaction is, is right or okay, or we should just accept, but, but, Let's be a little sympathetic to it because I think it's a natural human way to react. One of the things that 
popped up on Twitter uh, after my talk. When I give a talk in a thing this big, there's just people tweeting like the whole time. So when you know when I get done, uh, uh, you know our team here at Strong Towns is kind of staying on top of of Twitter and trying to respond to people and give them links to things and and stuff like that. But there's some of it that just you know is there. And when I get done, I try to kind of address sometimes some of the the. Um, I was going to say the mean tweets. I don't mean mean as in like vile, but I mean like the, okay. One is like, I had, I have one slide in my presentation. It has like three kind of concluding points for the first half of the presentation. And the first concluding point is the more we grow, the poorer we get. And of course I've just spent, you know, 25 minutes showing this and explaining this. Um, But someone took a photo of that slide, posted it, and then quoted from it, you know, the more we grow, the poor we get. Well, all the like pro-growth people came out and just attacked that. Like, that's silly. That's dumb. Um, and one person said, you know, this this completely lacks nuance. Um, you know, th- this whole thing's cra- even though I, you know, I just spent twenty five minutes like explaining and giving the the nuance. Um, but in these threads, I, I found just this kind of overwhelming reaction. Uh, which I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna build up to what I'm just calling like peak delusion, and I think peak delusion happens when it's universal. Like we we're all like buying into it to a degree, and obviously when I say all, not everybody, but when we get to a point where like the vast majority of people want to believe a certain narrative. Uh, I think we reached this, you know, uh, that, that is clearly like not true. I think we reached this point of like peak delusion and I feel it all around me. And it's a very discomforting, disconcerting kind of thing. And I want to talk about it a little bit in this podcast. Our friends over at the market urbanism. Um, and I do say friends, I, I, I consider them friends. They're certainly, uh, you know, I, I think in many ways, like intellectual allies, uh, we're, you know, sympathetic and support uh, a lot of the same things. Yet there are some really strong points of uh, divergence in the way we look at the world. And one of them kind of gets to this peak delusion. One of the comments from uh, Market Urbanism Report uh, to that particular slide, you know, it was this whole like litany of how oh, that's crazy. Um, you know, it's not true. And then, and then it was this like, no, no city has de- declared bank, only one city out of, you know, 4,000 declared bankruptcy in the last recession and no cities, you know, very few cities have declared bankruptcy in the last 80 years. Uh, so, you know, the whole premise that cities are getting broken, getting poor, uh, is just wrong. It's just not right. Um, and I, I look at that and I'm like, that's, that's crazy. That's really, really crazy. Um, and it's, it's crazy in like a myopic kind of way. Because I, I look around and like, to me, every single city is in default right now. Like, I don't know one city, whether it is New York and San Francisco, uh, all the way down to like my little town here in central Minnesota, every single one of them is in default. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not making their bond payments. Most of them are, are, are making their bond, you know, almost all of them are making their bond payments. But if like bond payments is the way we measure whether a city is in default or not, 
I think we've got the wrong measuring sticks. You know, what is, what is default? To me, it's like, are you keeping your promises? Cities make promises to bond agencies, yes. They also make promises to residents and businesses, property owners. Uh, where, are, are, are they able to keep the promises that they make? And now, so there's different degrees. I mean, I would agree that there's different degrees of promises. Someone running for office that says, you know, I want to clean up the streets. Uh, I'm going to, you know, my, when I'm elected, I want to go out and, and have like really good garbage collection. And then they get into office and they find that budget constraints limit them to what they can do. I'm not talking about that kind of promise. I'm talking about the kind of promise where it's like, okay, we're going to uh, have a road in front of your house. You pay your taxes, we'll maintain your road. We're going to connect you to the city water system. Uh, you pay your water bill and we'll maintain the pipe and the valves and the meters and the water tower and the water treatment facility deal. And, you know, I, I think for residents, um, for business owners, for people who own property uh, or people who live in the community uh, are, you know, renting uh, something that someone else owns, uh, that, that is a real, that's a real promise. You know, that's a, that is a very real promise. And the idea of not meeting that promise is a default on what they have uh, agreed to. Now for city managers, um, I think it's less of a, it's less of a promise. Uh, cl clearly it's less of a promise because uh, a lot of them are not doing it and it doesn't keep them up at night, you know? Uh, they're still out doing mega projects and they're not like fretting over, you know, in the way like uh, Lafayette, Louisiana has kind of in the past with us fretted over like, why is this happening? Let's get to the bottom of it. Very few places are trying to get to the bottom of it. They're trying to rationalize, make excuses. How do we convince people to raise taxes or raise fees or bring in more money? No one's really trying to get to the bottom. Like, why is this happening? That's why my talk was such a, you know, powerful thing for a lot of people. Um, but it, 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 it's this idea that, you know, are we in default? It, absolutely we are. I mean, I just, I just walked to the office tonight. Um, I can't tell you like the level of, of disrepair, uh, you know, everything from like street trees that have gone bad that have never been replaced to the park not being maintained and overgrown with weeds, to sidewalks that are like four feet wide next to 50 mile an hour traffic that are cracked and falling apart. You know, and, and I don't live in like a really, I mean, I was in, like I said, Baltimore. I was in Old Goucher. I was in some of the poorer neighborhoods in Baltimore uh, that were in a lot rougher shape than my place. Um, but my place, we're in default. Like there's no question about it. Um, so I think this, this notion that, you know, well, if the city's not declared bankruptcy, then it's not in default is just silly. Detroit had decades where it was defaulting on it's like basic, basic promises that it made to people, you know, we, pay your taxes. We'll provide public safety, <laughs> you know, call 911 and we'll send a fire truck. I mean, we weren't even doing that. Right. Um, you know, it, it was a long time before they got to the point where they stiffed their bondholders. I think this is an open question. And I think um, there's going to be a, I, I, 
at some point in the future, there will be a morality question that comes to play. And I'm not going to weigh in on that one tonight. Uh, I'm not going to weigh on that one in this podcast, but there's going to be a morality question that comes into play. You know, do you stiff your bondholders or not? Uh, you know, do you stiff your people, right? You know, we've seen Puerto Rico kind of in this position, like Puerto Rico's not allowed to declare bankruptcy, but Puerto Rico stopped paying their debts, you know, like, fine. Um, we just need this cash to actually do basic things for our own people. What are you going to do? You know, like what, 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 what are you going to do to stop us? And I think we're going to, you know, reach that point at, at some point here. Um, but I, I think this notion that like cities are not in default, you know, not defaulting on their bonds, ergo, uh, you know, the whole narrative of strong towns is somehow not correct. You know, that the cities are, they've got, you know, the infrastructure is fine and, and, you know, we can handle it. We just need to, we just need to raise taxes or we just need to become more efficient and grow more. Uh, th this is all part of this like peak delusion to me. I read a report and I want to go, th I want to go through, like I I'm sitting here thinking about this on the walk in tonight, like how crazy, because I, I step back and I, I feel like we are in, I said this to my wife tonight, like I, I, I feel like we're in this time of just, uh, and I know a lot of people are feeling this, so I'm not saying anything like radical here, but just like craziness to a degree that I can't, even begin to comprehend you know it's it's hard to put into words um like some of the some of the the things that to me are like prima facie insane yet are just taken for granted for instance tonight uh I, i'm reading this article uh, cbs uh so you know not a like fake news outlet you know not one of these uh like not real places um, like a legitimate like news story, right? And this is about uh, corporate executives and share buybacks. Um, uh, the The title of this article is "Executives Are Selling Off Their Company Stock at a Record Pace." Um, and the story is all about uh, two things: one, the people who run companies are selling their shares, run public companies, and the reason we know this is because they have to disclose it, and two. Uh, at the same time, they're using the company's money, so shareholders' money, um, to buy back more shares of their stock. Um, here's, here's from the article. With September not yet over, stock sales by company executives reached $5.7 the highest September in a decade. August, $10.3 in insider sales also reached a 10-year record. So 10 years, go back minus 10 years, what, 2008. So in 2008... Um, you know, as stocks were starting to implode or as we were getting close to that implosion point, um, insiders were selling their shares. So they were selling their shares before the implosion or, you know, as the implosion was going and, and suspected of getting much, much worse. Um, insiders were selling their shares. 10 years later, we're at the same point. Insiders are selling their shares. Second paragraph. At the same time, stock buybacks are roaring ahead pumping up U.S. share prices to new heights. Companies this year have announced $827 billion in spending to purchase their own shares, well above the buybacks that took place during all of 2007, when the previous annual, which set the previous annual record. So you see what's going on here? 
Um, we have uh, companies run by executives who are selling their shares. The companies themselves uh, are buying those shares. Um, the buying of the shares, of course, when you're selling, um, all things being equal, when you're selling in the market, you're putting downward pressure on the share price, right? Um, when people are buying, they put upward pressure on the share price. Well, if you're the executive, you want upward pressure on the share price. You want to be selling into a surge, right? In fact, the conclusion from the article, uh, they quote a guy uh, from a, a liquidity research company. His, guy, his name is David Sanchi. I can't even say his name. It doesn't matter. The quote is, is the interesting thing. He says, quote, insiders have been committing lots of money for stock buybacks, and they're not doing buybacks because they think stocks are cheap. <laughs> The stocks aren't cheap. They're at like all-time highs, right? They're doing it to pump up stock so they can sell it, right? Now, this is, this, is, this is being reported. Obviously, CBS, at least, thinks this is a big enough deal to report. Uh, you know, but we've got stock market at all-time highs. Uh, we have, you know, continuing uh, not only corporate share buybacks, um, but but lots of private investment money continuing to roll into the stock market to uh, to boost stocks. People buying index funds and other uh, you know kind of passive investment vehicles um, that are jacking up stock prices for stocks that are just like crazy, crazy, insane. I, I saw the other day, and I didn't print this one out. I probably should have. Now that I'm I'm thinking about it, where you know of the S and P 500, the percentage of them that are just like junk stocks, like stocks that you would not buy uh, if you were buying 500 different companies. You know, if you were taking your money and going out and buying 500 different companies, these would not be companies you buy, but they're in the S&P 500. So when you buy a passive index fund, you're buying like the 20% of companies that are doing well and going up, and then you're buying 80% of these kind of deadweight companies. Um, you know, that uh, at, at some point, like the dead weight starts to take over. Let me, let me give you an example. And I'm going to, I'm going to take a little do drink here. Hang on a sec. One of the companies that I have enjoyed uh, following is McDonald's. Um, I don't own any McDonald's. In fact, I don't, I, I own, let me, let me think here. I own one stock. Yeah. Right now at this point in time, I own one stock. And that makes it sound like my whole portfolio is one stock. No, I I, I did a, a thing at the beginning of the year about how I allocate my portfolio. I'm not going to go through that again. Um, but I think I said at that point that I own like one stock and I, I own that same one stock. I do own a couple of mutual funds that invest in like high dividend, mostly foreign uh, high dividend stocks. Uh, um, but high dividend, I that, that's the wrong way to say it like blue chip, uh, old school, stable dividend paying stocks. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind that you would like, you know, electric companies and things that, you know, and, and not ones that are like over levered and all that. Um, anyway, very conservative portfolio, what have you, uh, a tiny, 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 tiny bit is, uh, is, is one stock. I don't own stocks. Um, but I do enjoy following some because it, again, it, it gets into this like peak delusion thing. So McDonald's, um, I, from time to time, enjoy the occasional Egg McMuffin. 
Um, a lot of times I find myself uh, driving to the airport. It's a two and a half hour ride from where I live. And if I got to catch like an eight o'clock flight, that means I get up bizarrely early. And, uh, you know, one of the ways I stay awake, I'll swing through uh, a McDonald's on the way and grab an Egg McMuffin. I, I like I like Egg McMuffins. I'm not ashamed to uh, to say that. I like making my own at home, too, and they're probably better. But uh, a good Egg McMuffin now and then is not a bad thing. So I've, I, I, I'm interested in, in McDonald's stock because it kind of plays into this whole, like, crazy narrative. So I'm going to give you some numbers here, and I'm going to do it in a way where I'm, I'm going to try to not um, not uh, be too crazy. If you, if you want to follow along, you can go to uh, Yahoo Finance. It's just finance.yahoo.com. These are all like publicly available numbers right there. I'm not giving you anything that's like difficult to look for or difficult to see. This is stuff that like everybody who does investment in any serious way um, this is like the very first like pass through, like before you invest any money, you look at this stuff. And when you do that, like I have no clue why anyone would invest in, uh, in McDonald's. Um, for example, uh, back in 2014, uh, they had $27 billion in revenue, $27 billion. I'm, I'm just, I'm sharing, I'm, I'm sparing you from all the small numbers just so we can kind of, uh, you know, do this in, in a way that makes sense. So 27 billion. Um, last year, they had 22 billion in revenue. So from 27 uh, to 22. So quite a drop in, in, uh, in revenue. At the same time, um, their debt, uh, their interest expense. So I, I don't, like on this little printout in Yahoo, it doesn't say how much debt they actually have. Um, but it does say their interest expense. And you can kind of, you know, obviously if you have more debt, you have more interest, even though corporate debt yields are way, way down. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're not paying a lot for your debt if you're McDonald's. Their debt went uh, from, in 2014, uh, $576 billion, or I'm sorry, million, that's their interest, to $921 million. Um, that's just the interest that they're paying. So um, their revenue has gone down uh, about 20%. Um, and their debt expense has gone up, their interest has gone up 60%, right? So if I just told you like those two things, like you have this company here where their revenue is every year going down, 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 and their debt is going up, 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 up. What, do you, what are you doing with that company, right? Are you buying? No, you're, you're, you're getting out of that. That's a, that's a, that's a bad investment, Right. It's going in the wrong way. And you hear like the vibe around McDonald's being, well, you know, millennials aren't buying their stuff and boy, they're having a hard time. No, you just look at the numbers. Like we're saturated with McDonald's. You know, you can only do like so much. And when you stop adding new stores, um, you know, you're just left with, you're left with these numbers here. So your, your revenue continues to drop. Your debt continues to go up. Um, during this period of time, Profit to 2014 to the end of 2017, profits have actually been stable. So if we look, um, profits are up over that four-year period of time, profits are up one and a half percent. So essentially like level, right? They've stayed level. And they've done that largely through cost cutting. Um, they've, they've, uh, they've cut a lot of costs. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and uh, part of that, you know, the debt is kind of, 
uh, been maybe part of the transition. Um, but the idea is that, you know, if they could maintain that profit margin, uh, not have their profit go down, their profit did go down a little bit, but then it went back up and then it went back up again. So we're basically at, you know, flat over that four year period of time, even though revenues have continued to drop, they've, they've cut costs to kind of maintain that profit. So you've got a company here that has a really long track record, right? It's been around a long time, well-recognized brand, you know, who has not heard of McDonald's has good egg McMuffins, right? I, I, I actually like the, uh, the, the bacon, the bacon, egg and cheese muffin too, like the little English muffin with the bacon, egg and cheese. Like I, I kind of like that too. That's not bad. Although I'm, I'm generally an egg McMuffin guy. So they got, they got all this going for them, right? We all know what McDonald's is. Um, but the revenue is dropping and dropping substantially and their debt is increasing and increasing substantially. So what do you think the share price has done over the same period of time? I, I think if you, if you just knew those numbers, like flat profits, uh, revenue going down, interest going up, um, you would say that share price at best has held steady at worst has, you know, dropped in half. It's, it's gone way, way down, right? No, uh-uh. it's up 72%. In 2014, uh, it was selling at $96 a share. As of the end of the day today, it's $165 a share. It's up 72%. Why? Why? And this is what I say, we're at like peak delusion. Like, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. There's nobody out there who can be looking at McDonald's and saying, you know, I'm looking out of the future. I'm really bullish on McDonald's. So bullish that the, the, the share price can go up by 72% over four years, right? This is not like 70% over like two decades. This is like a huge, massive run-up in value. And you look at this and say, oh yeah, that, you know, I'm going to buy in. It seems like a good time to buy. That's nutty. That's crazy. Now, let me tell you what else is going on. Back in 2014, they had almost a billion shares outstanding, 996 million uh, outstanding. Today, they have 816 million outstanding. So they bought back almost 200 million shares, almost one out of five shares they have purchased back from the marketplace. Okay? Why is that important? Because what it does is, and, and this is, this is so silly and so juvenile and don't pretend that like everybody who's a sophisticated investor doesn't know this. It just shows you that there's a lot of crazy dumb money in this system today. What that does is that if you hold profit steady and you decrease the number of shares, the earnings per share goes up. Okay. Think of it like this. We have a pie. There's 10 people we uh, have to cut the pie in 10 pieces to serve 10 people. Now, two people go away. We got to cut the pie for eight people. Uh, even though it's the same pie, the pie per person goes up. And people are using that to say, ah, I'm going to pay more for this company. I'm going to pay way more for this company. Th this, is, this is crazy. This is nutty. And, and I, I get it. I, I, I watch McDonald's because... It's one of these that, like, I think you can get your mind around. Um, you know, what McDonald's does is not real sophisticated. Um, my wife has an uncle, so I guess I have an uncle-in-law, 
who ran a, uh, a chicken farm for many years. And uh, for the last, I don't know how many years, they sold their eggs at McDonald's. Um, McDonald's would come in and I, I don't, I don't know all the details, you know, it's, it was a, it was a deal they had and they, they had a big chicken farm and they sold their eggs to McDonald's. Um, you know, you, 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 what they're doing is not all that sophisticated. Now it's complicated, right? You've got to get eggs from this farmer and that farmer and you get cheese from over here and you get your, uh, ham, you know, from wherever. And you, you know, you got, uh, employees you're training in and stores you're rotating through. And I, I, like, I get, I get that. It's not simple. I'm not pretending that it's simple. Um, but it's not like there's some voodoo here, right? Like, uh, boy, if they have some breakthrough in, uh, this technology, this thing could go to the moon. It's a pretty straightforward business with a pretty straightforward trajectory where you can kind of, you know, sit and say, all right, Everybody in America lives within half an hour of a Big Mac today. Um, how is that going to really change, uh, you know, 20 years from now? I don't see it changing much at all. You know, this is, a, this is pretty like stable business. Why is the share price going up 70% when the debt is going up and the revenue is dropping precipitously? Why? Why? It doesn't make sense. Would you buy this stock? I think you'd be crazy to. I think you'd be crazy too. Now, that's one stock in the S&P 500. One like dog of a stock that's going up. Uh, part of the reason, and I alluded to this earlier, if you buy the S&P 500 index, if you just go buy you know, whatever passive index fund, you're buying McDonald's. Even though this stock is junk, you're, bu you're buying part of it. Like that's part of what you're buying. You're, you're, you are part of the the, the wave driving up that stock. And what should happen to McDonald's right now is that McDonald's share price should be punished mercilessly for the, for the fact that their balance sheet looks like junk. That's what should happen in a marketplace. It's not happening today. And it's not only not happening in McDonald's, it's not happening in hundreds of other companies that are major companies in the S&P 500. You get to the Russell 2000, it, it's like pervasive, pervasive. Um, I could go through a whole bunch of these like this. You know, this is why I don't have any money in stocks. It's crazy. Um, let me give you like the darling, the one that gets all the headlines um, for craziness. Uh, that, of course, being Tesla. Um, Tesla today, as I'm recording this, Tesla um, as a market valuation worth more than BMW. So Tesla, the company, is worth more than BMW, the company. Now, let me give you a couple of things to go. So, so if you bought every Tesla stock, it would cost you more than if you bought every uh, BMW stock, right? So Tesla, the market has valued it greater than BMW. Last year, Tesla made 80,000 cars. Or I'm sorry, this year, they're going to make 80,000 cars, right? I, I, was it this year or last? That, let me give you, I think, let's just say it was last year. Yeah, I, I, I wrote these numbers down. I think it was last year. Last year, BMW made 2 million cars. So Tesla made 80,000. Uh, BMW made 2 million. BMW made 8.7 billion euros in profit. Now, I haven't bothered to compute that into dollars because Tesla lost $2.2 billion, right? 
So one made almost 9 billion euros. The other one lost over $2 billion. Um, and they're valued the same. Like the stock market said, oh, oh, they're the same. Now, here's the crazy thing. And there's people out there right now who are listening to this going, well, Elon Musk is a genius. And Tesla does more than just, you know, cars, which they, they don't. Um, you know, but they, they do batteries and they do, uh, you know, um, computer operating system updates. And they figured out how to, you know, put in like great cup holders. And I'm telling you, go tour like a BMW factory some point. Go talk to BMW scientists and engineers. I, I, Elon Musk might be the most genius, brilliant person since Leonardo da Vinci. He, he may, I don't think he is, but let's, let's just posit that he is. I'm telling you that the brain power at BMW exceeds that. And not only the brain power at BMW, but just the whole like internal quality control system process, product and research and development, like the whole system at BMW, which by the way, they have 8.7 billion euros of profit last year to work with. I saw, um, you know, the Tesla Model 3, uh, you know, this engineering marvel uh, that they're producing now, you know, the, the electric car. And I saw uh, a BMW car, um, and I, I think it was also a Jaguar, um, and I think Fiat, but I'm, I'm not sure. It, they were all European brands, although Fiat owns GM now, so you take that for what it's worth. Um, they're all like, it's, it's, we, when I listen to like Tesla investors, it's like Elon Musk basically like the, the, the thing, the, the person closest to like being Jesus on earth uh, has come up with things that nobody else has thought of or invented or could even come close to doing. Yet, like all these other car companies are coming out with electric cars and they're awesome. And, and they already have like the production facilities to create them. And they already like have the, the, the software and the data systems and, and like all the dealerships and all the people who know how to work on these and fix these. They, they've already got that all lined up and they're already making billions of dollars doing it. Yet the market has valued Tesla as more than Ford, more than GM, uh, and now more than BMW. It's like Honda, Toyota, and uh, Volkswagen, I think, are the only car companies that are worth more than Tesla today. I'm telling you, Elon Musk may be like a near deity. He may be the smartest man uh, since Einstein uh, and Leonardo da Vinci. That's, cra that, that's crazy. That does, that does not compute. There's no way that company is worth that. There's no way it's worth that. Again, I feel like we're at this like peak delusion point. Today, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. Um, they have been, uh, uh, well, I don't want to get too, because I'm going to start to sound like Ron Paul if I get into the interest rate thing. Although, I'll just say this. I think Tomas Sedlicek, the, uh, the Czech economist that I'm so fond of, uh, so fond of, so fond of, gosh, it's late. Um, I think he he described the interest rate thing to me in, in the perfect way. And he quotes Aristotle. Um, he paraphrases Aristotle. I say he quotes. He paraphrases Aristotle by saying, like, interest rates are spooky. 
you know, interest rates like travel uh, energy, which is basically money is like labor and capital. Uh, it's like it's like a representation of your labor and a representation of capital is money. And what interest rates do is they time travel money. You know, like you, uh, you're going to invest money today to get money back in the future. Uh, you're basically like, you know, time traveling that money and saying, here's how much it will be worth in the future. That's interest rate. The other way around is like, I'm going to borrow money today. I'm going to pay you back in the future. Um, again, I'm going to borrow one more. I'm going to pay you back something else. That's the, that's the interest rate. So interest rate essentially like time travels your labor and energy into the future and back from the future. Um, it's spooky. It's spooky in that way. And we had, you know, low, low interest rates for a long time uh, in the early 2000s. Um, we did that because we had the dot-com bubble that blew up and we had 9-11 and we were trying to juice the economy and get things working. And I think most people today, including economists that I probably don't agree with very much, would say the Fed kept interest rates too low for too long. And that was what created the housing bubble. I don't think the housing bubble is that simple, you know, like I, I think there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but certainly, you know, the spookiness of interest rates, we, we misjudge what interest rates should be and um, basically pulled forward a lot of consumption. Um, we then, you know, as a reaction to this, not only lowered interest rates uh, to zero, and in Europe and Japan, they went negative, and in some places are still negative today, which is, you know, again, the mind reels at these things. I, I get, I, let me just say this, because some of you are going to write me and say how ignorant I am at economics. I get the theory of negative interest rates. I, I get it, right? You're trying to get money off the sidelines. If I pay you to borrow money, if I pay you to borrow money, you'll go and spend it and then you'll get the economy going, right? If I pay you to buy a house, which like literally, I read this thing where in Germany, there are people who've actually gone out and bought houses with negative interest rates. So you live in a house and you get a check every month. That is a world that I don't understand. That I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. Right? That's a world that like something is broken underneath to create that outcome, right? So today the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. They have been um, trying to, in a sense, wean the economy. And, and let's just pause here. Uh, you know, the record-breaking economy where the stock market's going through the roof, unemployment's at the lowest levels it's been for however long. Um, you know, I realize our president has a, a blowhard side to him. Um, I don't even think his supporters would be mad about me saying that. Um, you know, he's got a, he, he has a salesman aspect to him. Um, but even if you, you know, don't buy the, the bluster, you know, the greatest economy ever, you don't buy that bluster. Um, by all the macro statistics we've got, things are going pretty well, right? Unemployment's down. Uh, GDP growth is up. Uh, you know, the stock market is reacting positively. Uh, you know, interest rates are under control. Inflation is low. Like, you know, every, uh, if we were sailing a ship, it would be like, you know, the, uh, the breeze is nice right in the direction we want to go. The mast is out. 
the the waves are down. We're just cruising right along. Like this is this is absolutely perfect. The Fed has been uh, telegraphing in this like perfect market. They've been telegraphing way in advance. Like we are going to continue to like slowly wean you off, wean you the market off of these uh, ridiculously low interest rates, so we can get back to something that uh, that makes sense. And you know the 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 market. Uh, in the past has reacted negatively to this, but now uh, seems to be uh, comfortable with the notion that interest rates would continue to, to kind of go up a little bit. Here's, uh, here's an article from CNBC that uh, I read today about the interest on the national debt. And of course, the national debt, you know, it, again, peak delusion, right? Um, uh, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say this, and I don't want to. I I, I really don't want to like isolate uh, our audience. Um, so if if you're a partisan person, like just dial it down and cut me some slack for like 30 seconds here. I'm I'm not uh, a left of center voter. I don't really identify as a Republican today. I, I may have over a decade ago. I really don't now. Um, I don't know where I fit. I think a lot of us maybe are having this problem, or they don't know where I fit. But like economically. Um, I think like this stuff matters. I think deficits matter. I think debt matters. I think all this stuff matters. And that puts me in a, in a, in a camp that has tended to be more Republican than Democrat, at least when Republicans are not in office. Now that they are in office, trillion dollar deficit, not a big deal, right? Like the, you know, the official party line now is like deficits don't matter. Or if they do matter, we're just going to ignore them and not talk about them. It, it, you know, back when we weren't uh, in power and I say, I'm not saying we as in me, I'm saying we as in I'm speaking metaphorically as a Republican now, <laughs> um, you know, deficits were like the, the, the bane of us. We had to get rid of these deficits. Now they, they don't matter. They don't matter at all. So it's easy to have huge amounts of economic growth if you're willing to run deficits and essentially pull forward future consumption, which is what, what borrowing is. Borrowing, again, we'll get back to the spooky nature of interest rates. Borrowing is just taking future consumption and bringing it forward to today, right? So here's this piece from CNBC, and I just want to read this part here. The, the title is, As Debt Rises... The government will soon spend more on interest than on the military. This is published uh, um, today, which is uh, uh, September 26th. Within a decade, more than $900 billion in interest payments will be due annually, easily outpacing spending on myriad of other programs. Already the fastest growing government expense, the cost of interest is on track to hit $390 billion next year, nearly 50% more than in 2017, which is the year before, right? A 50% increase in, uh, in debt. Um, this, is, this, is, this is crazy, right? And our deficit this year is going to be a, a trillion dollars. Uh, you know, yes. Is it, is, it, is it juicing the economy? Yes. Are we seeing lots of economic growth? Yes. Yes, we are. Um, is there going to be a price to pay for that ultimately? Well, I, you know, I've seen uh, very smart economists say no. I've been saying, you know, we can go on doing this forever. I, I find that really hard to believe. If you just look at a, a 1% increase in interest rates, let's just look at that. So right now, our, our debt 
is over 20, it's like 21 or 22 trillion. Let's just say it's 20 trillion, just so it's like easy round numbers. Um, that's, that's a two with 13 zeros, right? So if you take uh, an increase interest rates by 1%, so 1, 1% from basically zero or historically low levels to 1%, which would still be like bizarrely low levels for financing the federal debt, you're talking about interest only of $200 billion a year. $200 billion in a year. That, these are, again, it's hard to look at the system and say, like, all's fine, right? Like, don't worry. Like, come on, Chuck. Uh, no city's defaulted in, in 80 years. Um, which, by the way, I get this one all the time. Like, you know, no, since World War II, no city has defaulted. I'm like, why do you start at World War II? Why don't you just start at like 1900? Because a whole bunch of cities defaulted in the Great Depression. Like a ton of them did. And why do you count default as only like not paying your bondholders? You know, why don't you look at debt, which in 1950, municipal, you know, city budgets spent about 2% of their budget on debt. I've seen cities that spend 50% of their budget on debt service. 50%. I think the average nationwide, like three or four years ago, was like 18%, which itself is, cra is crazy, like just insane. Um, I, I want to say it was New Jersey, uh, but it's, it's easy to pick on New Jersey. It might not be. I, I know Texas is approaching this too, but I, I'm pretty sure it's New Jersey. Every penny that they get in gas tax goes to paying debt on prior road projects, right? So like any, anybody who would look and say, well, like, Chuck, nothing bad, you know, since World War II, uh, cities just have not declared bankruptcy. Um, boy, Chuck, in the last recession, only one city declared bankruptcy. Everything is fine. Why are you so uptight? I, I just feel like we're like in this weird, crazy land. I want to get to um, Detroit because I, I've, I've been telling this uh, I've been offering this like explanation of Detroit as a way to get past this reaction of, okay, Chuck, I get what you're saying, but that's not us. Okay, Chuck, I get what you're saying, but we're different. Um, because it's, it's the same reaction that people have when you mention Detroit. And I'm just going to say like, you know, your city is Detroit. And then you are going to think in the back of your mind, like, no, we're not. <laughs> and you're going to have some reason why you're not Detroit, right? Like everybody I talk to, they're like, we're not Detroit. And here's why we're not Detroit. The, the market urbanist, uh, you know, tweet to me, says something about like Detroit uh, declared bankruptcy, not because they had too much infrastructure, which I never said it was because they had too much infrastructure. I said, it's because they, they, you know, haven't built anything productive, you know, like you, you're making losing investments, it's not because you have too much infrastructure. It's because you're not using it. It's not, you're not making good use of it. Anyway, uh, the market urbanism report uh, tweeted at me, you know, Detroit didn't uh, go bankrupt because they had too much infrastructure. It was because of corruption and their hostility to growth. Um, yeah, I've had people like on the left of center say, you know, oh, Detroit, uh, they were a victim of like greedy corporations and Wall Street vultures, Right. You sometimes get like the narrative on the right being it's all about pensions and bloated government and big bureaucracies, you know, and then you get those people who are like, you know, it's those people, 
that's why Detroit went bad. We, you know, we don't have those people here. Um, the common narrative there is like, we're not Detroit, right? Like we, we are not Detroit. And it, it, it's, a, it's a proxy for this larger conversation of like, you know, that city is not us. Like Chuck, okay, I see what you're saying. I get the numbers. I understand the narrative, but that's not us. Like we're smart. We got it figured out. We're not that. Here's how I explain Detroit. In the early 1900s, as Detroit was experimenting with the automobile on its way to becoming the motor city, uh, they were the first city, and there were some sister cities around there that were involved in the same you know, kind of process, uh, but all in, in the same kind of region. Um, they were the first city that really experimented with the automobile suburb, right? They were the first ones that had their workers uh, live in houses on the outside of town, uh, drive in. They were the first ones to build highways through the middle of the neighborhoods. They were the first ones to uh, tear down buildings for parking lots. They were the first ones to kind of spread out uh, across the landscape using the automobile as the, the mode of operation to get around. And when the economy, when we as a country entered the Great Depression, when we had the crash and we had the depression that followed, uh, what you saw is cities all over the place declaring bankruptcy and, and going into default. And the ones that didn't declare bankruptcy and go into default, they, they went through huge financial turmoil, right? Uh, my friend Joe uh, Minicozzi talks about Asheville and how it took Asheville to like the 1990s to pay off their debt from the 30s. Uh, something like bizarre, crazy like that. Um, because they were just loaded up with debt when they entered into the, the Great Depression. And of course, you know, I, I don't think they defaulted, but the basically like they couldn't get access to cap. They couldn't borrow anymore. No one's going to loan you money when you're loaded up with debt and it's like the depression and uh, everything around you is imploding. And by the way, you look just like everything else that's imploding, right? One city did really well during the depression, comparatively speaking, right? And that was Detroit. Detroit continued to grow, continued to add uh, uh, you know, wealth to the community, continued to have population move in, continued to see success, continued to make investments, did not suffer the hardship that other cities did. And you can imagine people going to the conferences and the gatherings back then. We got this great invention, the automobile. Uh, we just beat the Nazis and the Japanese. Uh, we're victorious. We're standing on top of the world. We've got all the world's gold. We're the world's reserve currency. We've got all this oil. What are we going to do? We don't want to slide back into depression. You know what? Let's copy the one model that has been shown to work in this country. Let's all copy Detroit. And that's what we did. And so my narrative of Detroit is that Detroit's not any different than any of us. They're not any different than any other city in this country, really, with very few exceptions. They're just early. They're just early. They're just a couple decades ahead of everybody else. Now you can say, well, Chuck, um, we don't have the corruption that Detroit had. Yeah, maybe not. You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, you, your body gets weak and frail and fragile, and you might die from pneumonia, or you might die from liver failure. Like, I don't know what it is. It's the fact that you're weak and fragile. That's the problem, right? So, so yeah, I, 
you know the 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 end cause the the end thing that you know is written on the the death certificate might be different for every city you might not go down in a blaze of like you know sex scandals and uh you know wall street malfeasance with hedge fund money coming in and and ripping you off i mean that that might not happen in your city um but it'll be something else right it'll be something else that's uniquely you Jim Kunstler talks about the long emergency. And it's the word long that I think is the hard one for us to digest. Because, you know, it's a little bit like the, the old adage, and it's, it's um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself now. I can think of like the author. I can picture him. I can picture his books. And I can't, the name doesn't come to mind. Um, famous American author, uh, who said, you know, how'd you go bankrupt uh, very slowly and then all at once, right? That's the, that's the long emergency part of this. How does it happen? Very slowly and then all at once. I don't think we're at the all at once phase, right? Like I don't, I'm not saying that we're there. And Jim is funny because every year Jim does these uh, like, you know, end of the year, uh, or actually it's like beginning of the year prognostications, and he always says, like, you know, the Dow will go to 4000 and uh, oil will be, you know, $400 a barrel, and, uh, you know, the capital will burn down. He always, he always says something. I love him. I really do. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, um, I have friends with him. I, I, I find him, uh, I realize that he's not like a millennial favorite, and I realize that he's controversial on college campuses. And I realize he's, he's kind of in the curmudgeon phase of life, but kind of like that, uh, you know, that curmudgeon, that, that uncle that you've got that uh, maybe says some things sometimes that make you cringe, but you, you love him because you, you know, you've been around him a long time. There's a part of him in you and you see the good in him. I, I really like Jim a lot uh, on a personal level. Um, when he describes the long emergency, he's describing something that is going to be long and painful. And I think long and painful also means like confusing, right? Again, go way, way back to where we started. This, this kind of innate sense that we can delude ourselves uh, into believing what we want to believe. Chuck, I hear your narrative, but that's not my city. My city's different. We got this figured out. We, we got it in the bag. Well, you know, you look and, uh, you know, housing prices have been going up by 10, 12, 15% a year. How long do you think that'll go on? Oh, Chuck, you know, don't be negative. Um, okay. Well, construction costs, uh, even though core inflation has been less than 2% for, you know, as long as, as long as I can remember way more than a decade, uh, construction cost inflation has been between four and 5% since the, since the early nineties. Uh, how do you keep up with that? Uh, Chuck, don't be negative. You know, it's like over and over and over and over. These things like don't add up. They don't make sense. This is the this is the confusing part of the long, in the long emergency. And so, what I really want to leave you with tonight is just this 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 sense of we as strong towns advocates have to be like the calm ones, right? We have to like keep our eye on this change. While, while the, the hurricanes going on around us, whether we get to that level or whether it's just this kind of slow, oppressive, like 
constant drip of things. Um, we have to kind of see through the insanity and and be like the steady people here, right? Because ultimately, and I, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, when things get bad, you know, when we get through that, uh, I, you know, I went bankrupt slowly and, and then all at once, when we get to that, uh, you know, slowly getting really hard. And then when we get to that all at once part, um, you think things are wacko now, they're, they're going to get really wacko. And we have to be there. We have to be there uh, with a narrative that explains what's gone on, a narrative that's not divisive, but a narrative that is um, not only real and, and correct, um, but, in, but a narrative that is, is not... Uh, I think divisive is the right word, um, but I, I want to say is not, um, is, I'm not even saying it's not a populist thing. It's just not, it, I, I, we need to be there with a narrative that explains things in ways that don't pit people against each other, that doesn't look at the past and say, those people were horrible and, you know, today, you know, today we're virtuous. It It, it has to be a narrative that says, they were human, so very human. They made these mistakes. We understand them. We're going to try to do something differently. We'll fall short because we are human, but let's, let's, let's work at it in earnest. And, and I, know, and, and I know my good friend Johnny Sanfilippo is listening to this and has listened to this because he listens to our podcast. I know, Johnny, I love you. I love you to death, man. Um, Johnny says like, Hey, I'm just waiting for this. Chuck, you, you're, you're too optimistic. You're sitting there with your, uh, hot dishes ready to hand out to people when things get bad. I, I am a little bit, I hear you. Um, I do think that we need to be there with the narrative and we need to be there with the response. Um, because humans are not going away. We're going to pick this thing up. We're going to figure this out. We're going to dust ourselves off and, and, and we're going to try again. And we've got to be there when that trying again phase comes around because things could get really out of hand and really crazy. And, and if there's something that we, I think, are called to do right now, um, it's to be that calming influence among this crazy. Uh, the Strong Towns movement has to be a place where thoughtful, prudent people uh, assemble uh, to, to, to work on rationally responding to this set of challenges. Um, we can't get sucked into the crazy. We can't get sucked into the crazy. All right. I'm going to walk home. Uh, I'm not going to have an egg McMuffin on my way home, although uh, I could. Um, I, don't, I don't walk by a McDonald's, but there's one uh, that I could kind of go out of my way a little bit and walk to. Not going to do that. I'm going to resist uh, because I'm going to, you know, let McDonald's fail naturally. <laughs> uh, for the rest of you, uh, go ahead and enjoy that Big Mac. I'm not a Big Mac fan, so I, I don't, I don't, I only do breakfast at McDonald's, uh, and that only occasionally, right? Um, but go ahead and enjoy your Big Mac, and just know that uh, you know you might not get it in a few years because really McDonald's should go away because their balance sheet stinks. Um, take care, everybody. Uh, keep smiling. Uh, keep working at it and keep doing what you can to make yours a strong town. Talk to you soon. 
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.